Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We hope you're safe and well. Be careful. Take all your precautions. And even though you may be socially distanced, make sure you stay in contact with uh, folks that uh, you may, you know, you're concerned about. You want to just let them know you're thinking about them. Make sure they're okay. So text, email, phone, whatever you can do. Uh, we can still stay connected. So hopefully you'll do that. And thank you for being connected with us by joining us here on AOA. Coming up on our program today, Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, will join us. We're going to talk about the challenges facing the, the ethanol industry and some things that they're hoping to, to uh, see from the government that would help. We're going to talk with Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. He will join us a little bit later to talk about what Farm Bureau is seeking from USDA as far as assistance for farmers and agriculture during uh, COVID-19. And also a little bit later on, we are going to uh, learn about uh, another advancement in the fight against soybean cyst nematodes. So all that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start things off with Todd Neely with DTN. Todd, how are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Doing good. Um Always looking for signs of normalcy. And I tell you, in my area here in West Central Illinois, sprayers are going, some planting is taking place. It's, it's a welcome sight. Yeah, absolutely. I think any any way we can get back to normal in some degree, I, I think uh, just getting out of the house, if anything. I yeah. mean, it's, been a, it's already been, what, a couple of weeks, three weeks, and uh, I think a lot of people are starting to go just slightly nuts. <laughs> I enjoy working in my yard anyway, but even more so this year, I tell you. Hey, one of the things we've been watching is the the, the food supply chain and making sure it stays open and, and going during uh, this crisis. Uh, and one of the areas of concern, what happens if workers in plants start coming down with uh, the coronavirus? And we are starting to see some of that, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. We're seeing all kinds of reports across the country, um, several in Iowa, where they're taking measures at various plants. We've seen some uh, shutting down, at least for a day at a time, to do deep cleaning. Uh, Even here in Nebraska, we had uh, a JBS plant in Grand Island in central Nebraska, uh, where 10 cases were reported. And uh, it's interesting because uh, in that particular case, uh, you know, Grand Island's not a big city, but yet uh, when you look at the scope of the of the infection and the spread of the virus, uh, that particular county out there in Nebraska is in the top three in terms of the cases reported. And so uh, it's something that here in Nebraska people are watching closely because it's not a very big area, but it seems like to have quite a bit of infection. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that everywhere. I mean, Tyson Foods uh, suspended operations at a, at a plant in Columbus Junction, Iowa, um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about what what these plants can actually do. I mean, we we see, uh, you know, we understand that uh, the production of meat is, is very, uh, it's very intense and there's hardly any way for these people to follow social distancing rules and that sort of thing. And so uh, it is definitely a concern. Uh, right now, I don't think we've seen a ton of interruptions necessarily in the food chain. 
but it's definitely something I think we all need to really keep an eye on. Even right down to the grocery store workers themselves, they're at risk, and we're hearing about some of them getting sick. I mean, it, it shows, again, there are so many links in that food chain, and uh, a lot of times we take those links for granted, but those are those people all uh, do a valuable service, a, a vital service to making sure we all have uh, the food. We have the food that the farmers produce, but there are many people involved in getting it out to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it really does. It highlights the complexity of, of the food chain. And I think, uh, you know, I think we can do our part, obviously. You know, the governor here in Nebraska is uh, encouraging people to make one trip to the store, you know, maybe every other, every other week or two. Um, you know, and when we go out, I mean, we're seeing increasing numbers of people wearing masks. And so I think people are taking it seriously. But uh, you think about it, you go to a grocery store um, and, you know, those people have to be there. We need that supply. And I think it should be uh, it should be something we all take seriously when we go out just in general right now, but especially to a grocery store. Yeah, I hope I, I think there'll be many lessons learned from this crisis we're going through. Hopefully one of them will be a greater appreciation for our farmers and ranchers who produce our food and then all those in, on, in that food chain along the way that uh, make sure that that food gets to all of us. Uh, let's talk some other issues uh, in Kansas. Uh, what's going on with the ag-gag law, as it's called? I, I really don't like that term, but that's kind of what it's been called <laughs> now. Uh, uh, in a lot of states, uh, these issues are going on. What's the latest in Kansas? Yeah, well, Mike, uh, you're right. Across the country, these these laws have not been holding up well. Uh, we've seen a number of states, uh, nearly half of all the states, have attempted to pass legislation uh, to pass these laws. Kansas is one of those. They had one in place. Uh, it was declared unconstitutional here just a, a short couple of months ago. Um, and so now uh, the same judge in a district court in Kansas City, Kansas, ruled uh, you know, that they're going to uh, issue a permanent injunction against that law. Uh, it's kind of left the state in a lurch because there really is no backup on this. And, you know, we saw it in Iowa as well, where uh, the state of Iowa had uh, several challenges to its to its law. Uh, it actually rewrote the law in Iowa, and that law's uh, faced stiff uh, uh, legal headwinds. And so I think, uh, you know, it's just another one in the long line of, of battles on this front. And, uh but right now, the scoreboard doesn't look too good for states to try to pass these laws. And uh, also, another story we've been watching, the dumping of milk in Wisconsin. I know the dairy industry is uh, appealing for relief, for help during this time. Uh, they're really getting hard hit by uh, the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mike, we're seeing, uh, if you go on Twitter very often, you see a lot of uh, a lot of dairy producers dumping milk in fields, and it's really it's really a sad thing to see. But there's such an oversupply right now because of uh, how slowed down the economy is at this point. Uh, you know, we've been getting questions from dairy producers as well about you know what the farm bill does for this sort of thing, and uh, we don't really have a lot of answers. And I think uh, I think it's incumbent upon USDA to get more of that information out there to producers. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in a, in a desperate situation. Uh, you know, and dairy's faced a lot of headwinds over the past several years for a number of reasons, and uh, this is just another uh, another one of those situations where dairy does need some clarification on this. Well, we're reminded also that government can help, but it it's cumbersome and slow and a lot of red tape right. and a, a lot of hurdles to overcome. So uh, we're going through that process now, and um, 
yeah, there's just so many challenges and issues out there, and uh, we will try to keep uh, on top of these and get information out to people. But as you said, information can be very slow in coming on right. a lot of these. Well, Todd, stay safe and stay well, and uh, we'll we'll talk again soon, okay? All right, Mike. Same to you. Take care. Okay. Thank you. That's Todd Neely, DTN reporter, joining us. Up next, we're going to talk with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Real challenging times for the ethanol industry as well. They could use some help, and we'll find out what they are they are seeking as far as some relief and some help as well, and maybe some good news on relaxing some rules and letting more ethanol plants uh, be able to provide uh, the needed ingredients for hand sanitizers. Uh, we'll talk about that and more coming up next. Stay with us on AOA. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we're happy to be joined now by Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, hope you are well. I'm doing as well as I can be, Mike. I hope you're doing uh, well and your loved ones are safe and healthy during this, uh, this wild time. Yeah, yeah we are, and um, we're all... Um, trying to get through this uh, as best we can, you know, and I know for the ethanol industry, it's very, very challenging. I was thinking about this. Uh, we we go through a trade war and then right into a pandemic, and it has really uh, slammed the ethanol industry hard. Slammed the ethanol industry in a way that's unprecedented. We had so many companies hanging on by a string coming into this year, and then, as you say, the, the pandemic, sort of the double whammy, the pandemic and the oil price trade war between Russia and Saudi Arabia um, it's just devastated the economics of, of anyone in the in the fuel sector. It's ethanol and biodiesel is hurting, and frankly, some of the refiners are going to be hurting as well. It's tough. What are you as an industry looking for as far as relief, help, assistance from the government? Well, we're doing a few things. One, we're trying to work with USDA as we speak, um, Mike, to make sure that that additional funding that they receive from Congress in the third stimulus bill for the Commodity Credit Corporation gets out to agricultural producers, and there's some consideration there for ethanol producers as well. Um, and so those consultations are going on as USDA considers how to spend that money. We're continually beating on the door of EPA, trying to remind them that the RFS is really intended to be a floor for demand and that they have to be cautious about what's going on with COVID. Gasoline demand is falling. They're probably going to have to open, we think, the RFS rule for the 2020 uh, calendar year back up and increase the RVO because of some of the uh, fall-off in, in gasoline use that we've seen that, that leads to a fall-off in, in, in ethanol use since we're blended with gasoline. And so um, we're pressing on them. Uh, we're also going to be you know, talking to Congress. We think there's probably a fourth and um, potentially 
uh, Micah fifth stimulus bill that uh, Congress might take up uh, over the the spring and, and summer, and so we're we're going to try to position ourselves for some assistance there as well. Let's focus on EPA. Uh, I know, it's, again, it's it, it's frustrating that there hasn't been more. <laughs> Uh, cooperation from them for the uh, biofuels industry. Yeah, it, it really is. And the, the latest, um, I guess, effort that we've made with them, Mike, is it looking at that 2020 RVO. You know, they set that back in December at um, 20 billion gallons, 15 billion of which is supposed to be the ethanol. But that, that RVO is actually a percent standard. So it's 11.5% of all of the gasoline and all the diesel that refiners make this year needs to contain renewable fuel, ethanol, biodiesel, you name it. But EPA assumed gasoline use is going to be way up, 143 billion gallons when they set this back in December. And now we know gasoline use is probably going to fall to somewhere between 120 billion gallons, maybe 130 billion gallons. It depends on how long we're in this sort of uh, shelter-in-place situation. And that means if, if EPA fails to go in and adjust upward that 11.5% RVO, we're not going to use 20 billion gallons of renewable fuel, ethanol, and biodiesel this year. We're not going to use 15 billion gallons of ethanol this year. And so we're, we sent a letter to EPA on Friday knocking on their door, essentially reminding them, hey, the law requires you to ensure that the statutory volumes are met you can't just sit on your hands. You've got to pay attention to what's going on in the marketplace with gasoline and ethanol use falling, and you've got to go in and revisit uh, this RFS. And so uh, we'll, be, we'll be leaning heavily on them to, to consider that. Yeah, um, I, I'm sure it's too soon yet to, for any response from them. No response yet, but we've asked them to issue a, what we would call an interim final rule or a new rule by July 1st, um, and so we will be following up with with EPA to, to make sure that they are paying attention to our letter and our request and, and staying on top of this. Uh, at times like this, we need federal agencies to be nimble, uh, and that's not always how the federal government operates, mm-hmm. but... We need them to be nimble and, and understand what's going on in the market. We're talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, I talk a lot about this as we go through this uh, crisis, um, the ripple effect of things. Uh, the old saying, for every action, there's a reaction. We're seeing a lot of that now when we talk about supply chains and things like that. But certainly when, you, when you, you're shutting down or cutting back at ethanol plants, that's reducing markets for farmers for selling their corn. Uh, that has a ripple effect through uh, rural economies. I'm so concerned right now about what's going on in rural America with the ethanol plants we see, we see shutting down or slowing down. As you say, they're, they're buying less corn. I think when this is all said and done, we're, we're going to be talking about hundreds of millions of bushels of corn uh, that, that are sort of lost in the market because ethanol plants have shut down. Think about the livestock producers, the dairies, the cattle feeders, um, others who depend upon the distiller's grain and really work that into their feeding rations. And we're starting to hear about how ethanol plant shutting down is, is causing disruptions on the on the feeding side of things for livestock. And I just, you know, that it turns my stomach, the fact that 
these ripple effects that you just mentioned are indeed uh, coming home to roost. And I think the scary thing for the companies I represent, and certainly it must be true for farmers, whether they're um, row crop farmers or they're feeding livestock or running a dairy, is we don't know how long this is going to last. Um, how long will the economy be essentially grinding to a halt? When, when can we expect to pick things back up? And, and when that happens, will, will we recover quickly or are we going to so, sort of slowly work our way out of this? I think none of us know the answers to those questions, but I think that's what makes this especially um, dark and, and, and scary for folks. Yeah, when you're in a situation you've never been in before, you can't look back and say, well, we can do it like this or like it's been done in the past. I mean, we've never really shut down not only our economy but the global economy. And then you, So when you're trying to figure out how do you restart it, uh, again, you're in uncharted territory there. You really are. And, you know, the optimist to me is uh, hopes that there's some pent-up demand here at home and around the world and people get out and about. But I think we also have to be realistic and brace ourselves for the, the possibility that, that this recovery could be slow and people may be reluctant to get out there and, and travel and, and attend conferences or go vacation. Um, it just, I think it depends on how, you know, how much damage we can take out of this, mm-hmm. this virus right now with flattening the curve. It, it, it remains to be seen. Because I think when this started, maybe some of us had in mind that uh, at some point you just flip a switch. I mean, it's like somebody's going uh, all of a sudden announce, America, start your engine. It's all going to go at once. And, you know, one day it's it's bad, but the next day, okay, it's over and we go. We start. It's obviously it's not going to be that way. It's going to be a long process of getting back. And, and in some cases, you wonder if it ever will be back the way it was. Uh, one note before we let you go, Brian. Uh where are we in cutting through some of this bureaucratic red tape to allow ethanol plants to be able to help uh, uh, provide hand sanitizers for us? A lot of that red tape has been cut with, with really one exception. And that one exception, Mike, is that the Food and Drug Administration is still requiring a certain denaturant to be used by ethanol plants that want to sell into or donate into the hand sanitizer market um, isopropyl alcohol is one of those denaturants. There, there may be one or two others. Those um, products are in short supply, expensive, difficult to find, and so we're trying to get FDA to sort of loosen those rules. There are other ingredients that they can use to denature that alcohol or make it too bitter for people to drink when it's used in hand sanitizer. So we're working on that, but a lot of plants have been able to access that market and either donate to prisons or hospitals or, or sell it and, and, and make a little money selling it into the, the private marketplace. So we're, we're looking at those options as much as we can. Yeah, the ethanol industry helping out a lot there as well. So, uh, all right, Brian, thank you very much for the update. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll be in touch. You too, Mike. Thanks much. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Up next, we're going to talk with the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. Zippy Duvall will join us as the Farm Bureau has um, contacted the administration with a detailed list of requests to help agriculture 
and use some of that uh, recently passed CARES package to help all sectors of agriculture. We'll talk about it next on AOA. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. With powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Wanted to mention, you've probably noticed on our show, other shows, what you see on TV, we're all working, uh, you know, with technology to try to get guests on and information to you. And you you see it on TV. They're, they're doing their interviews with, by Skype or other forms of technology. And we're doing a lot, you know, on cell phones and things like that. So, uh, sometimes um, the connection is not always the best, and uh, so uh, we just ask that you be patient with us, and uh, we try to get the guests to you and the information to you as best we can, but uh, we're all uh, relying on technology and kind of overloading some of the technology in some cases, but uh, doing uh, the best we can. Uh, the American Farm Bureau Federation has uh, delivered to the Trump administration their list of requests that they would like to see done under the the recently passed $2 trillion package, that CARES package. A lot of us call it a stimulus package, but some are saying don't call it that. So it's a CARES package anyway. Uh, there's certainly money in there for agriculture. And the Farm Bureau sent a six-page letter to Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue late last week and uh, giving their recommendations for how to spend the 23 and a half billion that was earmarked for uh, agriculture. Joining us now is the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duvall. Zippy, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, these requests, uh, your message to the administration, what you would like to see done that would uh, provide relief to all sectors of agriculture. Well, the the main thing is to get it done and get it done quickly because the the condition of our farmers out across the country is, is in very bad shape, and, and they're needing this assistance uh, as quick as the secretary can deliver it. Now, I know that it, it is a very complicated process. I know that Sonny Perdue and his heart wants to do the right thing for everyone that it concerns. So they're going to be uh, they're going they're going to take their time and try to do it right, and we all appreciate that. But time is his essence, and that's the most most important thing to get it out there quickly. Um, uh, it is important that we hit all sectors because this is this has hit everyone. You know, it, you know it's a little a little bit unlike uh, what the MFP and the trade did, did to us, and it's kind of it's unlike what uh, uh, natural disasters do to us uh, because uh, they they come in certain areas of the country at certain times of year. This is hitting everybody all over the country, so we're encouraging them uh, to hit as many commodities as they can and all sizes of farmers. 
I know you didn't request specific amounts of money for each sector of agriculture, but you did have some recommendations, uh, like for the dairy sector or for the livestock sector. Uh, could you go over and uh, share some of that with us? Yeah, you know, uh, the dairy sector's gotten hit real hard. Uh, we're in a situation where a lot of grocery stores are limiting one gallon of milk to, uh, per family, and then we got farmers on the other end that are having to dump their milk out because they don't have a market for the milk which doesn't make any sense to anybody until you get down into the nitty-gritty and see what's going on. A lot of the problems in the, in the food chain now is that manufacturers or that are taking our further manufacturing our, our commodities are doing it for restaurants and, and uh, big box uh, uh, stores, uh, which doesn't fit the grocery store. They can't just automatically change over. Uh, so that makes it very difficult to find a market for some, some of that stuff. But in dairy, the price is falling. Uh, uh, we think that uh, some kind of direct payment to dairymen would be a faster way of doing it. Uh, of course, uh, purchasing of uh, milk products and putting it out to, to wherever uh, the food system, the government food system nutrition program uh, is putting it out at and maybe activate uh, a milk loss program similar to what we did in 2019. Uh, with wildfire, when we had the wildfires and the hurricanes, it was called the whip back then. So uh, that, there are certain things that they can do, and, and we're anxiously waiting to see what uh, the secretary comes out with. And on the livestock, uh, you know, the futures have dropped about 30%. We think a direct livestock payment to livestock producers. And we also mentioned catfish and crawfish because uh, their market is mainly restaurants. And, and they've been hit hard. Uh, so, you know, we would hope that they would purchase some beef, pork, and poultry products and get them into the nutrition programs. Uh, and we want to make sure that the uh, commodity, uh, the Commodity Futures Trade Commission keeps an eye on uh, the markets and make sure that nobody's manipulating the market and taking advantage of our farmers. And certainly there have been some concerns raised over that. We just talked with Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol about how hard hit the ethanol industry, the biofuels industry has been hit. I know that's another area of concern for you. It is, you know, specialty crops, cotton, uh, ethanol, bio. uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and we could talk for an hour about individual commodities. Uh, But the ethanol, you know, it kind of hits us two different ways, Uh, with the kind of price war out on, on oil and the lack of use of, of gasoline because everybody's staying at home. There's not a need for as much ethanol, so it cuts back on the use of uh, corn and uh, uh, further depresses the price of it. And then on the other side of it, the DDGs, the byproduct of ethanol, a lot of our cattle uh, feeders are feeding those DDGs and dairy farmers are using those DDGs and all across the production of livestock. And now there's going to be a lack of that. So uh, so we kind of get hit on both sides of that industry. Uh, ethanol is a great industry. It's good for America. It's good for our climate. It's good for our farmers. And we need to be some way to be able to keep that industry alive. Because, of course, cotton, we see cotton at uh, below 50 uh, cents a pound. Uh, the, the, the all-time low over the last, we hadn't seen this low in 10 years, uh, and we're looking maybe there's a direct payment that can be made to cotton growers or reenacting the cotton ginning cost-sharing program could, could help in that area. Of course, uh, in specialty yeah. crops, 
where we find a lot of our smaller, smaller farmers, mm-hmm. and they're getting hurt because with this uh, distancing, uh, social distancing, we don't the farmers markets aren't open, and all those uh, really small farmers that are supplying those foods to the farmers market are getting hit hard, uh, uh, and they, they need some help too. We're talking with Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. And Zippy, we, we hear a lot about the need out there for uh, personal protective equipment for our healthcare workers. Certainly, some of that equipment's also needed uh, on farming operations as well. It is. You know, uh, our farmers are having to, to do a good job of communicating with their employees, uh, try to make sure that they keep that distance from each other, make sure that they got a mask and and places to wash their hands, and you know, in in our industry, special, uh, especially uh, fruits and vegetables, we already did a lot of that. But they're even doubling up on that just to make sure that nobody puts their no, none of their workers are at risk. These people are not just workers; they're part of our families, they're part of our communities. Uh, we want to take care of them just like we would someone that's living in the house with us. So uh, we're very concerned about their uh, their health uh, and and their necessity of showing up for work and getting the work done so that uh, the future food supply for this country uh, can be relied on. Uh, and, and if workers don't show up for work, then we may feel the pressure of that six, eight months later because the crop wasn't planted or wasn't harvested. We're, we're seeing a lot of crops being destroyed because we can't get them harvested because we don't have the labor or there's some competition coming from uh, they're dumping product in here from um, from Mexico. So, especially in the Florida area, this is unbelievable the amount of crop that's being having to be destroyed by that. Zippy, I know you're close friends with Secretary Purdue. Uh, in your conversations with him, uh, what are you hearing from him as far as when some of these decisions and announcements will be made, and 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 getting this aid out to help these various sectors of agriculture? The last time the secretary and I talked, which was the end of last week, was that uh, he was going to do the best he could do as fast as he could, but he wanted to make sure it was right. It was more important to get it right and be able to help as many people as he could in all areas than it was to do it in speed. And I tried to encourage him that the speed of doing it was important to us, too. So um, I know that he's going to do the best he can do, and I know he's getting all kinds of suggestions from a 100 different directions. And. And uh, we, we just hope our six-page letter that we sent to him, uh, to him uh, find that the way to do it. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing what it was. But he would not give me a timeline. He said he would do it as best he could as soon as he could. So, um, and, and, I, and I trust Sonny Purdue to do exactly what he said. Finally, Zippy, what's your message to farmers and ranchers across the country and to consumers uh, as well? What's your message for them during COVID-19? Well, we started a campaign in the American Farm Bureau called uh, Hashtag Still Farming, and we've had unbelievable social media activity on that farm, uh, that hashtag Still Farming site, and, and uh, we're making sure that the consumer knows that our farmers are getting up every day, going out and doing their work, looking for people to help them uh, uh, do that work. Uh, we're focusing on making sure that the, the food chain doesn't get interrupted on our end. And we're the very first link in the chain. If our farmers don't go to work, then there's not anything to link together from there to the store. So 
Uh, we want to make sure everybody knows we're still farming. We're doing everything we can do to keep our families and our workers safe. And we're so uh, uh, farmers need to abide uh, by the regulations that the federal government's putting out, and we do the best job we can and make sure we keep our country secure and healthy. All right, Zippy. Thank you for very much for being with us. Stay well and safe, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, joining us here on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, as farmers are either beginning or getting ready, hopefully soon, to be planting another crop, we want to pass along some uh, new developments in the fight against soybean cyst nematode. And joining us now is Melissa Mitchum, a nematologist at the University of Georgia. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Uh, what can you share with us some uh, some good news, right? Is another breakthrough in the fight against SCN? Yeah. Uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, we're excited um, to learn that there's uh, some efforts being made by some industry uh, uh, groups that are releasing a, a new source of resistance on the market for our soybean producers uh, to combat soybean cyst nematode. Um, I think uh, most everyone is aware of the fact that the genetic diversity on the market is very narrow. Um, More than 95% of the commercially available varieties today have a source of resistance called PI88788, and the nematodes have started to adapt to it. So we're looking for uh, and trying to do research to try to diversify the genetic base of that resistance that's available to our growers. Well, we know in fighting weeds, just like in fighting soybean cyst nematode, um, it's an it's a ongoing process, right? You come up with something, and then mm-hmm. resistance develops, and then you have to come up with the next uh, step. So that's what we're talking about—the next step in this fight. Exactly. So you know, this is a potentially a new mode of action, and uh, anytime there's a, a new mode of action, um, which we've been. Uh, eagerly awaiting um, because of the, the issues with adaptation by soybean cyst nematode on the current source of resistance, which has really led to an increase in aggressiveness of the, the field populations and starting to see yield loss even on the resistant varieties today. So um, having a new mode of action uh, to rotate in is going to, to really help uh, farmers uh, reduce their population levels in the field. So this will be released, I understand, in in kind of small quantities this year for testing. Yeah, and uh, keep in mind that uh, we still need to do some further testing on these lines. But, um, you know, Syngenta has said that they have resistance to soybean cyst nematode. Uh, we're looking forward to testing them to, to really confirm uh, which types of pap- uh, soybean cyst nematode populations uh, they're effective against. And then, uh, you know, we have some current a, a large multi-state project right now that's funded through uh, the soybean checkoff 
looking at different rotation strategies. So uh, not only utilizing um, the PI88788, which is the current source of resistance on the market, rotating that with Peking type of resistance and uh, potentially um, some of these newer ones that are coming to market. And the idea there is really to try to figure out what rotation strategy is most effective at uh, reducing uh, uh, farmers' populations in the field to try to save yield. So that is um, something we're looking forward to incorporating this current year. You mentioned the soybean checkoff. Uh, That funding is critical, isn't it, to develop these uh, resistant lines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've got uh, so many groups of nematologists uh, and plant breeders, soybean breeders, as well as uh, even um, bioinformatics uh, groups that are working together to try to um, not only diversify the genetic uh, basis of SCN resistance in soybean, but also on the flip side, try to understand the genetics of the soybean cis nematode populations and how those nematodes are adapting to current sources of resistance, because we really need to understand both sides of the interaction and the checkoff. Without uh, the support from the checkoff, we would not be able to uh, develop new types of resistance and also uh, try to understand how to uh, enhance the durability of it. We're talking with Melissa Mitchum, uh, a nematologist at the University of Georgia and co-leader of the Soybean Cyst uh, Nematode Coalition. Melissa, this battle's been going on for some time, and we know there are a lot of different levels to it, uh, you know, testing and and understanding that you may be have a problem with soybean cyst nematode, you're losing yield to SCN, uh, so getting that awareness out there, and then as we're mm-hmm. talking now about developing these resistant lines. So it's been going on, this battle, for some time. What what do you see as, uh, as the future in this battle? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and something that, uh, you know, researchers have been um, battling uh, for years, and I think, you know, our, our goal and our focus and where the future is headed is towards prescriptive uh, FDN management. And what I mean by that is really trying to match up um, the nematode population in a farmer's field with the type of resistance they're planting. You know, right now, um, farmers don't have options. Uh, if they have a nematode population in their field that has adapted to the current source of resistance, it really... Um, we're put in a position where we really don't have anything to offer in terms of a different type of resistance to plant. Uh, Those varieties are very limited out there on the market. And so what we'd like to see is to have multiple modes of action um, that farmers can deploy and to deploy these resistant sources in in a more strategic fashion uh, to really combat the type of nematode population that is present in their field. And I think that's where, where this is all headed. So we're looking forward to being able to, to prescribe a better management strategy, and we haven't had that opportunity over the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. I think management's the key word there. It's got to be part of your uh, a management plan, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and management is what we're talking about. When I say management, we're trying to manage the population levels below an economic threshold, whereas you know people talk about eradication. Eradication of soybean cyst nematode is really not, a practical goal uh, because the nematode has a survival structure. It forms a cyst and and that cyst um, survives in the soil and protects hundreds of eggs um, in the absence of of having soybean around. And so I think uh, eradication isn't the goal. It's really trying to manage the population levels in the field. And and this awareness plan that you've talked about, 
you know, educational awareness is very important. And the Essien Coalition is a nationwide campaign right now that is really focused on bringing awareness to different issues. And I, I would encourage any listeners to go to that website, uh, the SCNCoalition.com, for more information. Very good. Good information and great uh, perspective. Thank you very much, Melissa. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Uh-huh. Melissa Mitchum, nematologist, University of Georgia. That wraps it up for today. Be safe, everyone. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.